the topic that you guys are discussing for the month during your lecture series, we're going to just throw up some example written board review questions and go through them together so that we can get you guys ready for not only your in-service, but eventually your boards. Um, so yeah, like we said, um, we're just going to do kind of a little bit of a case study and then we'll go into individual questions and hopefully hit some kind of take-home points for you guys to keep in mind when you're thinking about trauma patients. So I never really understood this. I don't understand why everyone gets so excited about trauma. It's like you walk in there and it's a total circus, right? There's 25 people. You can barely even see the bed where the patient's supposed to go on. And then somebody rolls in and they have, it looks like this. And you're like, whoa, everyone's looking at it, you know? And I just, it's, at best, it's organized chaos, right? So our job is to try to teach to you this cookie-cutter approach to trauma patients, you know, A, B, C, D, E. Um, and we do this very mundane, monotonous approach to these patients so that we don't miss anything. Um, because trauma patients come in all varieties. This is clearly a gunshot wound. I don't know, Matt, what's a, a memorable trauma patient? First one that pops in your head. Uh, guy got hit by a train and his arm flew off. Okay, arm flew off. Anybody else? What's a trauma patient that... The lady stabbed herself 10 times in the chest. Okay, yes. I had a patient the other day that stabbed herself 40 times, then doused herself on gasoline and injected herself with 200 units of insulin. That was a good case. We had a good time with that one. Um, I had a guy who fell off a ladder and impaled himself on a fence, and the whole six-inch top of the fence was in his neck. Uh, that was a good x-ray. Anybody else? Any other memorable shotgun underneath the chin? Yeah. Electrocuted on a pole and fell down 20 feet. Hey, all right, so you can, just from that, those couple of cases, <laughs> you can see why it's important to have an A, B, C, D, E approach because these trauma patients can, you know, they are very different, and yet we try to kind of approach them all the same. So um, important to keep in mind, you know, like I said, A, B, C, D, E for trauma patients, but you never want to go to sleep on us because you have to expect the unexpected, right? So if this gunshot wound was created by this, that is something different, all right? So don't go to sleep on us here. All right, how about this one? Looks like a car accident? Nope, just bad gas. All right, so we don't want, our job in the trauma bay is not to let something like this turn into this, okay? And we want to understand the differences between penetrating and blunt trauma victims. All right. <coughs> little, little Olympic fever here. All right. So with trauma, there is there's so much to know, right? And so I sort of thought this one wasn't obvious, but maybe one of our students can read this question and answer it for us. Anybody want to give it a shot? A 22-year-old gang member is brought to an urban ED with a GSW to his arm. Primary survey of the patient is intact, but handgun is found in the patient's clothes. Which of the following is the most appropriate action by the physician at this time? A, check to see if the gun is loaded. B, fire the gun into the floor to try all the ammunition. C, place the gun away from care providers and notify local law enforcement. D, hold the gun personally so no one can take it. Or E, use the gun to attack rival gang members in uh, <laughs> I trained in Chicago. That would have been E, but... Yes, all right, so the answer is C. So I put, sort of put this up there just because, number one, I couldn't believe that someone would actually print this in a question book <laughs> for board review, but it does 
point out, maybe I took it for granted that this is obvious, but your personal safety in trauma patients is important to us. So please make sure that you uh, always think about your own safety first. And please give the gun to law enforcement. Do not fire it at the floor because I do not want to be hit by one of the ricochets. All right. So let's discuss trauma here at UCI. Um, Randy, we had this patient. I think this was one of ours just the other day. So why don't you just... In a couple of sentences, talk about your approach to this patient when they roll through the door. Okay. So first, I want to hear. So because he's a stab wound, he's going to be critical. We want to know um, his vital signs. We want to know if he's talking and his blood pressure, especially his saturations. Um, a lot of times, the trauma team will prepare to put in a chest tube um, even before they see the patient, just based on if there's like they say if there's no blood sounds on one side, just let me know. I'm going to put in chest tube without seeing an X-ray. Okay. Um, we want to. Um, find out how many times he's been stabbed before he rolls through the door. Mm -hmm. um, we want to lay with airway first. Uh, usually that's not the problem. Usually it's either a chest or abdominal, a um, couple stab wounds at most. Uh, and uh, for the abdominal stab wounds, they tend to kind of do butt dissections just with their fingers to see if it's, I think, gone through the momentum. And then a lot of times it goes straight to the OR. If, the patient is decompensating and has um, an abdominal stab wound mm -hmm. uh, because it's perforating something. Good. So you can see just in a couple of seconds, he told you, I mean, that's like half the trauma chapter right there he just went through. And you're doing this pretty much in your head right as the patient rolls through. And so, yeah, we had this guy just on my last night shift. The call was a right upper quadrant stab wound a scratch, we were told. It was a little more than a scratch. But anyways, the guy's, he, he was tachycardic, but his pressure was fine. We did a fast exam. It was negative. If the fast exam is positive, these patients, most of them are going to end up heading to the operating room. Uh, sometimes if they're stable, they'll get a CT scan first. Other times they'll take them straight up for an X-lap. Um, when you're talking about the right upper quadrant, you have to remember, you have to consider your chest, abdomen, cardiac box. You have to start looking at exactly where it's at. Um, in the right upper quadrant, consider lung injuries, consider chest tubes. So these are all the things that are going through a head pretty much immediately when the patient rolls through. As far as the blunt dissection of this poking fingers and holes thing, I've seen it a bunch lately, but it's really not something we should be doing. So a digital exploration of the wound can be done by trauma in, a, in the operating room where they can, you know, kind of... Uh, open up the wound a little bit more, take a very close look at it, but I would not be doing that myself in the emergency department. Just a quick question um, mm -hmm. about, you made a comment about if they're stable, they may get a CT scan. Mm -hmm. um, contrast, no contrast. Um, you know, well, depending on where the injury is. Well, mm -hmm. In this particular case. That's why I was asking. Oh. Because um, I, it's, it's unclear, I think, to a lot of people, you know, IV contrast is easy, but you can make sure drink oral contrast. Um, you can discuss with radiology. You know, what, kind of, can you walk me through some of this quickly for people and what they're going to do about that? Sure, yeah. Um, and you may be covering it. No, this, is, um, this was just kind of to get us thinking about trauma in general, and then we'll go through some questions. It's not meant in any way to be a comprehensive review of trauma patients at all. So um, definitely you're, oh, sorry, um, you're going to be getting a, uh, you know, if this patient does make it to the CT scanner, it's definitely going to be with IV contrast. For abdominal stab wounds, particularly lower stab wounds, they're oftentimes going to have you give rectal contrast. But I have never seen them wait for oral contrast via the top portion uh, here in our institution. And I would say I would, I would not be waiting for oral contrast unless you're worried about some sort of a very 
upper injury. But rectal contrast, yes, for a lower abdominal stab wound. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Randy, for kind of introducing us to trauma patients. So let's deal with some questions because we definitely don't want to get it wrong. Um, okay. Can I? Questions? Anybody so far? All right. So why don't we have um, Kenny? Can you read question one for us? <clears throat> a 30 year old male involved in a high speed motor vehicle, motor vehicle collision. Good, obvious head injury. It's brought to the ED. His vital signs are heart rate 120, blood pressure 110 over 75, respiration 18. He opens his eyes with the nail bed pressure, is moaning, and uh, appears to flex uh, his upper extremity with uh, nauseous stimuli. What's the GCS? Um, hmm. <coughs> the handy phone. <laughs> no, can't use your phone. You're not allowed to bring that into your testing center. I would ask the trauma attack if I can't calculate. Um, All right, well, let's break it down. There's three components, right? So what do we look at? We look at... Okay, eyes is one. So he opens his eyes with nail bed pressure. And you get a one through four for eyes, right? So you think that's high or low, opens his eyes to nail bed pressure? High. Four. Three. Okay. I would give him a two. Anybody else want to go for a two? Yeah? Okay. So I'd give him a two for opening his eyes. What's the next criteria? Verbal. Okay. So he's moaning. So low. Probably low again. I'd give him a two myself. Yes. Good. Good. All right, and he appears to flex his upper extremities. That's, that's not a six, so with noxious stimuli, stimuli, so probably I go with three or four, three or I'd say three-ish. Three. So how about if we go two, two, three and give him a seven, yeah? All right. So you're going to have a test, you're going to have a question on every board exam about the Glasgow Coma Sale. And I would love to give you some fancy way to remember it, but you just need to memorize it. Eye opening, verbal response, motor response. Four, five, and six. And you're just going to have to add them up, okay? It's important. They ask you every single nurse in the trauma bay is going to ask you, what's the GCS? Every time you walk out of the trauma bay, there's going to be an MRAPR with a piece of paper for you to sign, and they're going to ask you, what was the GCS? So we just, yeah, two papers now, yes, thank you. So, yes, so we just need to know our Glasgow Coma Scale. Um, and I promise you will have a question on this. So of these three, Dina, which one do you think gives you the most information about a patient? Eye-opening, verbal, if you could only pick one, what do you think is going to actually give you the most information about the patient's condition? Um, I'd probably go with yes, good choice. It's got six, right? So we're going to give it a little bit more <laughs> importance since there's six. But here, to be honest, it is motor is the correct answer, and it's because you can actually, with the decerebrate and decorticate posturing, that actually gives you an idea of where they might be injured in their brain. Is it a cerebral injury? Is it a midbrain injury? Um, and so that is actually going to give you the most information about a patient, a particular patient. But yes, Glasgow Coma Scale, please memorize it. The cerebr yeah. Oh, yeah. So the GCS is really good in trauma patients, <coughs> especially when you want to know if you have to intubate them or not. So GCS less than eight intubate. So you have to know this. I know Dr. Chanwani has already said that four times. You have 
to know this. If you don't know this, memorize it tonight. The other thing is make sure you, you, you the caveat is you can calculate a GCS for non-trauma patients, but it's not like GCS less than 8 intubate in non-traumatic patients. So just, it's not always, it doesn't always translate to that. Obviously something's wrong, but it doesn't always <laughs> translate to that. Thank you for pointing that out, yeah. Important to differentiate trauma and non-trauma here, okay? All right. So decerebrate posturing, that's the one where you're going to be extended, okay? The arms are going to be extended. Sometimes the hands kind of rotate in, the legs rotate in. Um, indicates that there's brainstem damage. I don't, somebody taught me that extension, decerebrate, they both, it's ease all the way around. So decerebrate has lots of ease and extension starts with an E. That always... I don't know if that's helpful because DeCorticate, it's got some ease too. So <laughs> I'm not sure that it really helped me, but if somebody else has a better way, then please feel free to share. Yeah. Okay. Oh, all right. Oh, that one's good. Cortical for higher function. So okay. They flex up. Yep. So decorticate is where they're flexed. They're flexed at the elbows. They're flexed at the wrists. Flexed at the fingers. The legs <laughs> are still extended. Decorticate is less severe. That's why it gets three versus decerebrate, which gets plus two. Um, and they can progress from decorticate to decerebrate, and that's usually an indication that something is herniated. Okay? All right, so just there's our GCS. Question two. Uh, Dr. Weber, you want to take this one? Sure. 23-year-old male construction worker presents after a 20-foot fall of work. According to paramedics, he was initially unconscious at the scene, but has since been acting appropriately. The <coughs> the patient begins to become more combative and then more somnolent. What is the most likely diagnosis? Um, I would go with subdural. Okay. Does anybody else have a thought on that? Epidural. <laughs> okay. Shannon. <laughs> Shannon, you said epidural. Dina, you said epidural. Why? What in this case history made you guys pick epidural over any of the other? A lucid interval. Okay, it's a buzzword. Lucid interval, they're trying to get you to say epidural hematoma. These are the ones, young people, they're going to fall down, they're going to maybe get knocked out, then they're going to pop up for a couple minutes, and then they're going to rapidly decline. Because um, we know that every patient reads the textbooks before they come in, right? But when you're getting a question like this on your board, so that's what they're trying to point you towards is a lucid interval. Um, uh, with the epidurals, you know, it's the bonk to the side of the head. They tear the meningeal artery, and then they rapidly decline. So that's a pretty classic case presentation of what you're going to hear when they're trying to get you to pick epidural. Diffuse axonal injury, uh, kind of interesting. These people usually come in, and they're still unconscious. And they might not even have anything on their CT scan. There might not be any blood at all. Um, but they're usually not, you know, awake and talking to you. <coughs> Okay, let's, um, Juan, can you try question three for me? So, 68-year-old female Dana ultimately says is brought to the ED by her sister, pointing her sister, the patient fell in the shower four days ago. Over the last 24 hours, she's become less responsive, and her sister was unable to wake her this afternoon. For plasma voice, she's kept afib, for which she takes cumin. She recovered, she had a recovering alcoholic, and has not had to drink for five years. On exam, you know that she had a large contusion over her octopus. What's the most likely cause of a change in mental status? C, subdural hematoma. Good. Good. Yeah, this question, uh, it's kind of overdone here. They are trying to give you every reason for this woman to bleed to death, right? I mean, she's on Coumadin. She's, on, she's an alcoholic. So her platelets don't work. She, you know, her blood is thin. Um, and they are trying to point you towards a subdural hematoma. Um, 
which is more likely than her alcohol intoxication, certainly. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, <coughs> Shannon, do you want to do a question for? Sure. 15 month old child fell from a rocking horse approximately four feet high while his parents were taking his picture. He did hit his head on the floor. He cried immediately, no loss of consciousness. Stopped crying within five minutes and has been since acting appropriately. Which the following is true. For our observation period, this child can be safely discharged along with follow-ups, like such as scalp, soft tissue injury, and skull radiographs are remarkable. They can be safely discharged due to age alone. This represents a moderate to high-risk injury, and CT of the head is recommended. Since there is no loss of consciousness, there is little risk of intracranial bleed. <coughs> See, based on what I've actually done in the ED, I would pick A, but I was reading something the other day, and it said under 2, you get a CT because they're moderate to high-risk, so I would pick C. Very well done. So I picked A the first time I went through this question because I see these kids all the time and I send them home when they look good. The correct answer is C. And it's for exactly what Shannon said. Under age of two uh, is the big cutoff. So um, after I got this question wrong, I went back and did a little research, tried to figure out where I had gone wrong. So head injuries. The American Academy of Pediatrics and our colleagues in family practice came up with some guidelines. They're fantastic. They're for kids 2 to 20, which is fantastic, but our kid is 15 months old in this question. So children under 2, they said the reason that they took them out of the study is because there are no good predictors for intracranial injury. And so these guidelines were published, I don't know, I'm terrible with dates, but quite a while ago. They're not brand new. Um, but since that time, everybody has tried to come up with decision rules that include kids under the age of 2 since... Who falls down? It's toddlers, right? I mean, come on. So what, did, what are some of the things they come up with? Um, if they're asymptomatic two hours after the event, that's a good sign. If the fall was less than three feet, that's a good sign. CT them if the fall is greater than three to four feet. If they fell onto a hard surface, this one's kind of a soft call, wasn't in all the studies. If they had a seizure, if they had a loss of consciousness, some studies say greater than five seconds, other ones say greater than a minute. I picked five seconds because I think to a parent, a toddler is going to be unconscious for five minutes and it may have been one second. So um, I picked five seconds. If they've been vomiting more than five times or for longer than six hours, if they have a scalp hevatoma, if they're less than three months, your index of suspicion, so you should, unfortunately, there's just not a lot of good clinical exam findings that are going to help you with the tiny, tiny little ones. And if all vomit once. Yes. That's why it has to be more, more than five times. Yes. <laughs> Um, if it was an unwitnessed um, incident or if you suspect abuse. And these kind of criteria sort of all came out of the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network study. Um, and I'm sorry, you might not be able to read that, but um, what this study basically did is those criteria that we just talked about for the kids less than two, it sort of applied to those criteria and then scanned kids either you know, if they had a GCS of um, uh, 14 or if they had altered mental status or they had evidence of a, a scalp hematoma or something, then they were getting CT scans. Um, or I'm sorry, a palpable skull fracture. They were getting CT scans. I don't think that's real difficult. I think those are the group that we all pretty much make the same decision about. But the other group is... Um, if they have an occipital, parietal, or temporal scalp hematoma, if they have a history of loss of consciousness greater than five seconds, um, 
if they have a severe mechanism, and that's where the fall greater than three feet, hard surface, that kind of stuff comes in, um, or if they're not acting normally per the parent, then their recommendation is observation versus CT, which, again, <laughs> I think we can all get to that point. And these are the things that they factor in. Physician experience, multiple versus isolated findings, worsening symptoms um, during their observation in the ED, age less than three months, and then, of course, parental preference always weighs in. Yeah? It's tricky. Very tricky, isn't it? Um, so, you know, if the kid's not making any sounds, right, um, normally, even little babies, they're crying. That's sound, right? Normal sound for them. Can they? Can you give them a four for saying words? You can't. So everything's a little bit skewed. But you know, if you're normally kids don't like us examining them, right? So if you go in there and you get a kid who you're like hanging him upside down by his toe and he's not doing anything, then his GCS is not very high. But it is challenging to use a GCS that is in that population. So some of the tricks that you can try to do is have the parents talk to the kid and engage the kid. Ask, give them a toy, you know, have them see how they play. Those are some of the tricks that we try to use with kids to discern kind of where they fall on the Glasgow Coma Scale, but it's not easy to do. So um, this is just something, if you guys want to look this up, it was actually kind of an interesting article, and this is, for the most part, the summary of it. The head injury guidelines from the American Academy of um, uh, Pediatrics is basically if they have a normal exam, no symptoms, and no loss of consciousness, 24-hour follow-up is fine. And remember, these guidelines are for kids 2 to 20, okay? Low risk is if they have a normal exam, if they have a headache, vomiting, they're lethargic, loss of, C less than, um, loss of consciousness less than one minute, then you can either scan them or observe them. And moderate to high risk, get a CT scan. Um, these are kids under 2, altered mental status, persistent vomiting, loss of consciousness greater than a minute, seizures, facial injuries, multiple trauma, or any type of abnormality on their physical exam. So a little bit different. Again, these are the actual guidelines by our uh, pediatric colleagues, and they're for kids 2 to 20. This study here tries to give us some guidelines for kids that are under 2. Um, and Shannon, you were totally right on the question. When we go back to it, the entire question is based on a 15-month-old and going by the AAP guidelines. It's a moderate to high-risk injury because of the age alone, and so the kid would get a CT scan of the head. Okay? I don't know if any of the other attendings have comments about this. Um, if you would have gotten it wrong like me or if you were much smarter than me. No, it's um, good that, you know, they, they at least clearly say three feet because, wow, you know, I probably would have gotten it wrong. Okay. So I'm glad that makes me feel a little better that I'm yeah. not the only one who had to go back and double check on that one. Good job, Shannon. We, uh, very good. Okay, who wants to take the next one? Dina, you want to try to give the next one a shot? Sure. A 72-year-old female tripped on a rug, struck the edge of a table, and fell to the ground. She complains only of right-sided chest wall pain that's worse with inspiration, so it's extremely uncomfortable. This x-ray reveals fractures and ribs 8 through 10 without evidence of pneumothorax, which of the following is true. Patient can be discharged after infections are taped and pain control is provided. Aortic tear is the most common injury following isolated chest wall tear. Chest wall trauma, this patient like developing pneumonia should be admitted. Hypoxia is present following this injury, early intubation should be withheld. This is worse than the prognosis. So she's old and has rib fractures, um, and she's tender. So she's not really going. Um, I'd probably go with C. 
Good. C. C is the right answer. I had a little bit of trouble with this. I got it right, but I didn't <coughs> like the wording in this question because patient is likely to develop pneumonia. I think old folks with rib fractures definitely have a higher risk of developing it. Would I go so far as to say it's likely she'll develop pneumonia? I'm not sure. But that's what they're wanting you to get at is that Old folks who fall down and break multiple ribs, they're going to splint because they're in pain and they're at an increased risk of developing, getting infection in the lung. And so they should really be admitted for observation. Um, of course, you are going to, regardless of the mechanism, you're going to intubate someone if they need to be intubated. So question D does not make a whole lot of sense. Or answer D. Um, aortic tear is the most common injury following isolated chest wall trauma. No, rib fractures are the <coughs> most common injury, which she has. Um, and the patient can be discharged after her ribs are taped and pain control is provided. Do we tape ribs anymore? No. No, we don't really tape ribs anymore. Lots of older folks who come in and break their ribs ask me when I'm going to tape the ribs before I send them home, and I try to have a very intelligent conversation with them regarding why I'm not taping the ribs, but I'm not sure it ever goes well. Anyhow, it used to be a treatment in the past. We don't really use it that much anymore because of splinting and infection. Yes. So you probably tell them you're going to tape your ribs right after you pump their stomach with your alcohol intoxication. Yes, exactly. I will tape your ribs if you stop drinking. Yes. Question, so what kind of management would medicine do for this patient other than pain management? That's it, pain management. They would Incentive spirometer. Um, every hour when they're awake is, I think, what the usual recommendations are to try to encourage them to take deep breaths to prevent infection. Can, I mean, could that be done at home? I mean, sounds like... <coughs> it could be, but at a certain point, the risk is so high that you're better off to watch them, at least for a period of observation in the hospital. But with a good PMD and an educated family, someone who can watch her, could you talk about potentially sending these patients home? I think you could, but once you get into a 70-year-old who has multiple rib fractures, I'm probably admitting them for observation. I don't know what the other attendings feel. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it depends on your system. Um, so it kind of, we have such a tight follow-up system. Mm -hmm. I, I, there's no way this lady would get admitted, um, at least in our institution, because there's such good follow-up. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the lesson here is to have a discussion with someone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's the Langdorf um, mantra over again, don't carry the coffin by yourself. Um, you know, have a conversation with somebody who's, you know, the admitting service or whatever, and say, you know, here's this lady, and then document carefully in your note mm -hmm. that you had this discussion. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of like the best answer of four bad answers. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes on your board exams, I would love to say that that never happens, but obviously it does. So sometimes you just have to pick the most correct answer out of a list of subpar options. Um, and the other thing to remember is that, you know, say this is a 40-year-old person and you're sending them home with a couple of rib fractures. We have incentive spirometers. You can get them. You should send them home with them because they can do kind of their own pulmonary toilet at home and you may prevent a complication. So it's important to remember um, when it comes time, you know, one of the biggest things about discharging these patients is just having an intelligent discussion with them about what to expect and what um, they need to do and what the potential complications will be if they don't when they go home. Yes? I have just one, one thing to add uh, what you were, uh, what the question that came up about what else would you do for this patient in the house. I think what you would do for a seven-year-old, in addition to everything that's been mentioned, incentive spirometry, pain control, is I would probably have our pain service come and inject the patient's ribs. Mm -hmm. So they could inject, you know, mm -hmm. you could do it in the ER if, if that's a possibility, but if not, then I think that 
they could actually provide some some uh, local pain relief to mm -hmm. really make it possible for them to take some good breaths without having a ton of pain and without you know, giving enough narcotics that they're not awake enough to take a deep breath. That's an excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up. So a uh, nerve block to help with local pain control versus systemic opioids would also be an excellent option. Okay. Max, do you want to try one for me? Sure. <clears throat> 40 year old woman presents yes. after a stab wound in the mid-clavicular line of the left at the third intercostal space. The vital signs are BP 80 over 70, heart rate 100, and rate 22, stabbing 99%. A left chest tube is placed and 200 cc's of blood come out of the tube initially. Which of the following is next uh, management step for this patient? A CC of the chest, emergent thoracotomy in the OR, ED thoracotomy placement of the second tube on the same side. Um, well, I don't want to get a CC of the chest because I don't believe she's hemodynamically stable. Oh, I'm sorry, that's 2,000 CCs. That's what I mean. Um, I don't think she's hemodynamically stable to go down to radiology. Um, I don't think that a second tube would be super helpful. Like it's another 2,000 cc's. <laughs> 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 and then she doesn't have any blood at all. Then we're doing ED thoracotomy. Who's done an ED thoracotomy at UCI? Oh, <laughs> there you go. Oh, all right. <laughs> Sorry. Well, well I guess I'd be worried that it punctured like, the heart. So what are the options? You're either getting imaging studies in this not-so-stable patient, which you've eliminated. You're sending them up to the operating room because clearly something bad is happening. You're opening their chest in the emergency department on this patient who's still alive. Or you're placing a second chest tube. Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. All right. So very good. So number one, we don't do ED thoracotomies on patients who are still having vital signs in the emergency department. I haven't. We, maybe the case has come up, but probably unlikely. Oh, sorry. Um, okay, so what they're trying to get you to notice, and you caught yourself, because initially you said 200 cc's, and that changes this question entirely. So they are trying to um, give you a little pearl that if the initial output from the chest tube is greater than 1,500 cc's, they are going directly to the operating room. Per the literature, does it happen every day in real life? I'm not going to say that. But in the literature, if there's greater than 1,500 cc's of initial output from a chest tube, it's an indication to go straight to the operating room. Some studies are going to give you 1,000. The number is kind of all over the place, but for the most part, 1,500 is the agreed upon number. Okay? 1,500, remember it. The other thing is if they have more than 300 cc's per hour for more than two hours. That's an indication. If they have continued bleeding, because they've probably lacerated some sort of pulmonary artery or something, and they are pouring blood out into their chest continuously, that's an indication to go to the OR. And that number changes a little bit too. 200, 250 cc's I see a lot for more than four hours, or 300 for more than two hours. I would love to tell you which one is absolutely correct, but I can't, because I've seen that multiple ways and multiple questions. So they are trying to send this patient to the operating room for an emergent thoracotomy because of the initial chest tube output. Okay? Any questions on that one? Okay. So the only time you ever do an ED thoracotomy is if the patient is dead? 
If they've lost their vital signs. Oh. So the only time I have ever done an ED thoracotomy is on a patient who has lost vital signs either in the department or as they were just a minute or two out. I've done it on some blunts. In Chicago, we did it a lot more often because we have more penetrating. And so they would sometimes come in, they would have vital signs, they would lose vital signs in the emergency department, and we would end up opening up a lot of chests in the ER for that. Okay? I don't know if anybody else has seen an ED thoracotomy for something other than those two indications. Okay. Erica, would you like to try question seven? Regarding victims of motor vehicle crashes, which of the following is true? A, hypotension due to hemorrhagic shock occurs earlier in adults than in children. B, hypothermia during resuscitation occurs earlier in adults than in children. C, serious head injury is more common in adults than in children. D, renal injury is more common in adults than children. E, liver injury is more common in adults than in children. <laughs> okay, let's do this in one minute. Process of elimination. Um, I think hypotension due to hemorrhagic shock probably actually caused happens earlier in. Um, I think kids have a better compensatory response, so maybe that one happens earlier in adults. Um, I think serious head injury is pretty common in kids. Renal injury and liver injury, I have no idea who gets that worse. And um, I'm not really sure about this hypothermia thing. I think it children would happen first, so I'm going with A. Good job. Mm -hmm. A is the right answer here. And I like she walked us through her process. So she said, D and E, I have no idea. Let's take those off. Let's see what, if we can pick one of the other ones that sounds reasonable. Uh, serious head injury is more common in kids. They got huge heads. They're gonna, they're gonna injure them frequently, right? <laughs> Renal injury, they're you know in kids, it is more common in kids than adults, <clears throat> um, just because of patient size and where they're located. Liver injury is also more common in kids than adults, but that one I don't know if I would have, like Erica said, I don't know if I would have come up with that one without actually reading the study that they quoted, um, and so. Same thing here, hypothermia, I thought, plus or minus, kids have bigger body surface area, so I thought maybe they would get um, colder faster. And so that left me with A, hypotension due to hemorrhagic shock occurs earlier in adults than in kids, and it's for exactly that reason. Kids have this amazing ability to compensate. Um, and they can keep going, keep going, their heart rates can get to 200, they're compensating, and then they fall off a cliff, and then you've got a really sick kid. Um, adults tend to give you signs a little bit earlier that they're getting ready to fall off that cliff. So you have to be really careful with kids because they will compensate until they just crash. Okay? So hypotension due to hemorrhagic shock. And we'll get into shock a little bit more uh, after the next question here. How about question eight? Who hasn't? Is anyone, any of the residents haven't gone yet? Randy, have you done one yet? No. Okay. 35-year-old male. Presents after motor vehicle collision with hypotension and tachycardia altered mental status. He is determined to be in hemorrhagic shock. Which of the following is most appropriate? Blood product to administer immediately. Um, so he's male, so I don't really care about RH type. Um, probably so always universal donor. Um, I probably want to give him uh, blood that's been cross-matched. 
but he's in shock, so it may not be a full weight. Uh, I'm just going to give him type O <coughs> positive blood. I know why I cross match it, so I'm going to pick C. Okay. Your rationale for the RH was spot on. He's a boy, so we don't have to worry so much about the O negative portion that we would have to worry about in females. Um, but as you pointed out, he is in shock. And do you have any idea what stage, if they give you hypotension, tachycardia, and altered mental status, there's four stages of shock. Any idea which one he'd fall into? Fourth. Okay. And so he needs blood product right away. And so it's actually, the answer is D, uncross-matched blood, because you just don't have time to wait for it to be cross-matched. So that kind of brings us to hemorrhagic shock. There's four classes. I promise there will be a question on this as well on your boards. Class 1 is 0 to 15%. Class 2 is 15 to 30. I don't know why they like, apparently whoever picked these percentages was a big tennis fan, right? Because it's like tennis scores up here. It's like 15, 30, 40 in love, class 4. Um, okay, so 0 to 15 um, they can still have normal vital signs, normal pressure um, when you're in class 1. And really, crystalloids is the answer to class 1 shock. You don't have to give blood right away. Uh, class 2, getting a little bit more concerning, 15 to 30%. That's a significant amount of blood loss. There's that magic 1,500 cc's again. Initial output from um, a chest tube. If it's 1,500 cc's, that means they've lost 30% of their blood just through that chest tube. So they're going to the operating room. Their heart rate is elevated, usually between 100 and 120. Obviously, these are adult numbers. Um, their blood pressure can still be normal. Their pulse pressure is going to be decreased. And in these folks, you're giving them crystalloids, but you're probably ordering up some, potentially if you can wait, if, you know, if they respond to a bolus, you can wait for cross-mesh blood here. Class 3, 30 to 40%. Now they're getting really tacky. Now they're getting a little anxious. Their blood pressure is starting to drop. Um, and these folks need blood. Typed, if possible, and IV fluids, okay? Um, but some of these folks are definitely going to go into the O positive, O negative, uncross-matched category. And type 4, which is what Randy's patient in the last question had, um, he was altered, uh, he was hypotensive, and he was tachycardic. Uh, you've lost more than 40% of your circulating volume at this point. So you are in full-out hemorrhagic shock, and you need blood and crystalloids right away. So four classes, need to know the percentage and kind of what the treatment is for each class, okay? Is, is O positive cheaper than O negative? Is that why you're giving O positive since in male it doesn't use O I have no idea how much any of these blood products cost. I'm assuming they would cost the same, but I would think that your supply, it's a kind of a supply and demand thing. So if you give O negative to everyone, then when you really need it, you're not going to have any left. So if men can get O positive, then you know you'll have O negative in reserve for your lady friends who come in in hemorrhagic shock. Okay? Okay. Uh, question nine. We're going to start making people go twice. Kenny, you want to take this one? Yes. And which patient is an ED thoracotomy most indicated? 76-year-old male who was unstrained, strained driver in 70-mile motor vehicle collision and found pulseless at scene. Uh, the 25-year-old female with GFW to the right chest that is hypotensive, cystic uh, blood pressure of 40, uh, no mercury with no breath sound on the right, not that. 40, uh, male, 40 year male with step wound to left chest who lost vital signs, three minutes PTA and ED, received bilateral needle, 
says the compression zone may be that one. 27-year-old construction worker with the impaled fence post and abdomen, blood pressure negative 60, fluid and morse and pouch jump fast, not deep. So uh, the dichotomy indications include uh, uh, the transport time last uh, step, so step one, boom to the chest, and a transport time less than, I think, 5 or 15 minutes, I don't know which one. But the you, uh, you would like to have vital uh, in the ED or within five minutes before arrival to the ED. So I would go with, uh, with C. She lost the person lost vital three minutes before coming to the ED. So go with C. Good. C is the correct answer. So this person who's found pulseless at the scene. I don't think we're going to have a real good success rate on bringing this person back. So I would say he's going to come in and the decision is probably, unless he, unless he is on the ambulance ramp when this accident happened, I don't think this is going to have a good outcome. So this is most likely not going to get an AD thoracotomy. This one here, 25-year-old female with a GCS to the right chest who's hypotensive with no breath sounds. She hasn't been needled yet. The first thing you're going to do with this lady is not cut open her chest, but you're going to make sure she doesn't have a tension pneumothorax. So you're going to do a needle thoracostomy in the second intercostal space. See if you decompress it. See if that changes things. She may end up still getting a thoracotomy at some point if she goes down, but it's not the first step here because you haven't done a needle decompression. Okay? Um, I think this guy, uh, D, is pretty obvious that he's not the best candidate here for an ED thoracotomy, which leaves us with this person who lost vitals just prior to arriving at the emergency department, who has already received appropriate decompensation, uh, decompression per EMS, and now our job is to see if we can be more aggressive and get him back. Okay? Can yeah. I make one comment? Sorry, I know this is review. Mm -hmm. This is probably what you want to hear right now. But um, there was a study recently published, a retrospective study that's not out yet. But, um, but it's coming out shortly. Christy shared this with me. 318 patients who showed up to level one trauma center without <coughs> a pulse. Um, and um, there, was, there was cardiac activity in 20 of the 318. The survival rate of, to hospital admission was 30% among patients with ultrasonographic cardiac activity versus 0.7% among those without. So cardiac motion ultrasound had negative predictive value 99% and positive predictive value 30%. And uh, these were uh, trauma patients. So. so based on that study, if you did a fast exam, Dr. Fox, and this patient had no cardiac activity, would you still proceed with an ED thoracotomy? I would uh, because we're in a teaching hospital. And I think it's, uh, <laughs> for those reasons, I think it's always good to perfect that procedure for the, for the, to, get, to maintain your skill level. So. Because someday you really may save someone's life using that skill, but if you haven't done one in a long time, you may, you may be uh, hesitant when it's indicated. So rather than to ever be hesitant about being with doing something super aggressive like that, I think it's good to keep that skill level up. Okay. Um, excellent point. The survival rate for blunt trauma patients who get ED thoracotomy is not very good. Um, I've heard actually in quotes of survival rates from our department being higher than the average. Uh, for penetrating trauma, the survival is 38% for ED thoracotomy. That's a big number of patients. But remember those two pictures of penetrating versus blunt trauma? Mechanisms are entirely different, and the injuries are entirely different. And so I think it's important to differentiate blunt versus penetrating trauma in this particular case. So, yeah. Carrie, of mm -hmm. all of these, I mm -hmm. guess for the residents to think about, which one do you think would go straight to the OR? <coughs> that's, that's always also 
not for as much for the boards, but for us, you know, that's always a question that comes. And I think there's one that would have a higher likelihood of going straight to the OR. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the first one's not, right, if it makes it to us. The second one, uh, you know, there's other things you can do before mm -hmm. going to the OR, which you mentioned. Uh, the third one, I think whatever we're going to do, we're going to do in the ER if you're going to do something. And the fourth one, I think, is that what I'm trying to get to is that possibility, mm -hmm. is that is the one that has penetrating injury, fluid in the belly. You know it penetrated the belly to get in. So that's, that's one that you go straight to the mm -hmm. OR and not. And I think with these questions as well, it's hard to write questions that everyone agrees on. You can see even the discussion that it brings out amongst the faculty just here at our institution. So I think it's important to remember that the question is asking you, in which one of these patients are the most people, the most doctors who take care of this patient going to perform an ED thoracotomy? And I think given the options, there's clearly an indication for C. Some of us might do it in A. Um, B might get one after we have done other interventions. And D, I struggle to see where I'm going to do an ED thoracotomy unless somehow this thing is like sticking out through the ribs or something. But anyhow, um, but the most likely person, the best candidate, I think, is still C. And what Dr. Fox said about A is obviously um, good to note. Good to note that we might be able to make a difference in more people than we thought. Okay. Um, question 10. Dr. Weber, you want to try question 10? regarding imaging of the cervical spine. A 25-year-old female involved in a 45-mile-an-hour uh, NVC with a normal neurologic exam, no C-spine tenderness, and a femur fracture does not need cervical spine radio radiography. So, which is true. Okay, that's not true. All right, once the lateral C-spine radiograph is obtained, the cervical collar can be safely removed. That's not true. As long as trauma patient is found to be clinically sober, the cervical collar can be removed if there is no midline cervical spine tenderness. That sounds okay. The final step in clinically clearing the cervical spine is painless rotation of the neck in all four directions. Rotation all four directions. All right, so C and D. C is a little ambiguous. I, I guess I would go D. D is correct. You eliminated A right off the bat. Why did you eliminate that one? Uh, she has a femur fracture, which would be considered a um, distracting injury. A distracting injury is a criteria in which set of cervical spine um, decision-making uh, rules see. that we use. Distracting injury. I think that one, I think, is nexus. Okay. Good. So I promise there will be a question on the cervical spine. These are the criteria that we use. Nexus criteria, Canadian C-spine criteria. Um, I think we all like to use Nexus probably. I won't speak for everyone. I like to use Nexus more because it's easier for me. There's five things. you got to know it. It's pretty straightforward. And then I like to get persnickety about age, so I lean on my Canadian C-spine when they're a little older. Um, so Nexus criteria, no focal nerve deficits. Normal level of alertness. They're not intoxicated. They don't have a painful distracting injury. And there's no posterior midline cervical tenderness. And I think where we get into trouble sometimes is what constitutes a distracting injury, you know? 
I swear on some patients that I see, a, you know, a little finger fracture is distracting them enough that I cannot clear their C-spine. I think a femur fracture, we can all pretty much agree that a leg is going to hurt enough to distract, to be considered a painful distracting injury. So that's nexus. Canadian C-spine says if they're over 65, they have to get imaged. If they have paresthesias, and if they have a dangerous mechanism, fall greater than th three feet or five stairs, an axial load, so like you dove into something and hit the top of your head on the bottom of the pool, a high-speed rollover, ejection, or a um, bicycle or motorcycle accident are considered dangerous mechanisms. Um, if they have low risk factors, which is like a simple rear-end collision, they're seated in the ED or ambulatory at any time, their pain is delayed in onset, so they went home after the accident, now five hours later than the emergency department, and they tell you things hurt, and there's no midline C-spine pain, and they're able to rotate their head 45 degrees to the left and to the right. You can consider clearing them. I don't know if any of the attendings have um, opinions on which criteria set they use when they're making their decision about C-spine clearance. If any of them use one versus the other, I use a combination of two, um, I, especially I the low-risk ones that are mm -hmm. younger who have self-extricated mm -hmm. and then have, were bored and collared, um, <clears throat> only because um, you know, the, the whole able to rotate, even if they have pain and they're able to rotate 45 degrees, I generally combine the two studies, which is not methodologically sound, but in my brain it makes sense. So I, uh, I do the same thing, so guilty as charged. I sort of combine the two of them as well. Um, so these are just, I think in clinical practice, we sort of take what we want a little bit, but here are the criteria, straightforward, Nexus, Canadian C-spine, important that you know these criteria because they're going to ask you questions based on them. Yes? Yes, I'm guilty of BC's uh, offense as well, which is the next range. But uh, I think uh, to those of you who are familiar with MCRIT, the podcast done by uh, Scott Weingart out of New York, <laughs> At the end of last year, he had a couple sections where he talked specifically about nexus criteria, Canadian C-spines, and neck thinnings. And, and they may be worthwhile while you're in traffic on the 405 or something to listen to them. Uh, they're uh, rather meaningful, I thought. Okay. Thank you for that. On your iPads. Mm. <laughs> Not while you're driving, yeah, watching the iPad. Yeah, just listen. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so just a note that um, even, you, you know, there's so much focus on this because it's such a high area of litigation, and so that's why we try to kind of pound this into you, and we're very, yeah, attendings are very kind of persnickety about how they approach these patients. Uh, it's important to remember that 12 to 16% of fractures are missed with plain films. So, um, you know, keep that in mind, and then use these criteria to the best of your clinical ability and acumen to try to make the right decision as to who needs imaging and who doesn't. Um, and let's do one last question. Um... You haven't gone. Hi, Karen. You want to try this one? Uh, an 82-year-old male slipped in the shower. His disability facility recalls slipping, but is not certain if he struck his head. He is currently on a backboard, has C1 place. His only complaint is of mild tenderness in the right shoulder. On exam, he has no midline cervical spine tenderness, which the following is true. A, epidermal, epidural hematomas are very common at this age, and therefore a CT scan of the head is indicated. B, due to the patient's advanced age, imaging of the cervical spine is warranted, even though he has no tenderness. That one's true. 
C, cerebral atrophy provides additional prote <laughs> protection in this age group, <laughs> and therefore <laughs> having three is less common. That would be nice, but I don't think that's true. D, the most common C-spine fracture of this age group is a simple wedge compression fracture of C7. I'm going to go with uh, B, because he's 82, he's over 65, so for the Canadian, he has to have mandatory imaging of the C-spine. And then as far as A, I think that subdurals are more common. Good. Either way, I think a CT scan of the head is indicated, but not for specifically an Okay, the correct answer is B. And so by Canadian, he goes by age. In Nexus, they said his shoulder injury was a distracting injury. So that's how they sort of rationalized B is the right choice. You're absolutely correct. In A, subdurals are more common in this age group. Cerebral atrophy is not protective. Um, those bridging veins rip a little easier, so they get subdurals easier. And the most common C-spine fractures in the older folks is upper cervical spine fractures. So C1, C2, C3s, lots of C2s, okay? Um, they fall down and their little odontoid just can't handle that, so it breaks. <laughs> All right, which is exactly question 12. Um, I'll do this one. So, which of the following cervical spine vertebrae is most commonly fractured from falls in the elderly? Anybody want to take a guess? Very good. All right, yes. <clears throat> and one-third of fractures in the elderly include multiple uh, cervical spine vertebrae, so keep that in mind as well. If you see one, make sure you're taking the time to look for a second. Um, and I think we will use question 13, 14, 15, 16 as your guys' questions that you have to answer for your things, right? <clears throat> And I don't, if you, BC, I'm not exactly sure. If they don't have to do it now, this is on the lecture, they can answer them, but I don't, I think I'm supposed to have them answer a couple of questions for them. Yeah, okay. the next couple of minutes. And we can talk about these as well while you guys are going through them. I don't, you know, if you want. So this one's question 13. is an 11-year-old boy hit the curb while riding his bicycle, and he was thrown, sorry for the typo, uh, forward onto his handlebars. The classic injury associated with this accident is... Okay, very good. And don't send them to Chalk? Question 14 is, which of the following is most commonly injured, which of the following is the most commonly injured abdominal organ in pediatric blunt trauma? Anybody want to take a guess at this one? Spleen. Yeah. Spleen is correct. Good job. Spleen, liver, kidney, and then the bowel. Question 15, is a 23-year-old uh, presents with pain to her right lateral chest after a low-speed MVC. She is most tender in the, fifth, at the, in the fifth rib 
at the posterior axillary line, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in her evaluation? Any guesses on this one? Why chest and not rib x-ray? Exactly. So you suspect a rib fracture, right? But what you really want to know is, is there a, you know, a uh, pneumothorax or something else? And so the chest x-ray is a better answer than a rib x-ray. Good. And last but not least, which cardiac chamber is most commonly injured in penetrating thoracic injuries? <laughs> 